This is Line Dance Podcast. I'm Christopher Gonzalez. Hello and welcome to Line Dance Podcast on Move Radio. Today, Megan Barsulli and I will be talking about a few different things. First of which is the five types of imposter syndrome and how to beat them. This is on fastcompany.com, written by Melody Wilding. And a little subtitle uh, here is, There's more than one way to feel like a fraud. Here's what it takes to overcome the most common ones. Many, uh, <clears throat> <clears throat> Many high achievers share a dirty little secret. Deep down, they feel like complete frauds. Their accomplishments, the result of serendipitous luck. This psychological phenomenon, known as imposter syndrome, reflects a belief that you're an inadequate and incompetent failure, despite evidence that indicates you're skilled and quite successful. In short, it's a hot mess of harmfulness. It can also take various forms, depending on a person's background, personality, and circumstances. If you're familiar with the feeling of waiting for those around you to, quote, find you out, it might be helpful to consider what type of imposter you are, so you can problem-solve accordingly. Expert on the subject, Valerie Young, has categorized it into subgroups. 1. The Perfectionist 2. The superwoman slash man. Three. The natural genius. Four. The rugged individualist. Five. The expert. In her book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It, Young builds on decades of research studying fraudulent feelings among high achievers. Drawing on the work of psychologists Pauline Rose Clance, Ph.D., and Suzanne Imes, Ph.D., Young uncovered several competence types, or internal rules that people who struggle with confidence generally follow. This categorization, categorization is often overlooked in the conversation, but her reading of it can be really helpful in identifying bad habits or patterns that may be holding you back from your full potential. Below is a summary of the competence types Young identifies, so you can see if you recognize yourself. I also provide some examples you might relate to in your day-to-day life, as well as questions you can ask yourself. 1. The Perfectionist Perfectionism and imposter syndrome often go hand in hand. Think about it. Perfectionists set excessively high goals for themselves, and when they fail to reach a goal they experience major self-doubt and worry about measuring up. Whether they realize it or not, this group can also be control freaks, feeling like if they have done something right, or if they want to do, no, if they want something done right, they have to do it themselves. Not sure if this applies to you? Ask yourself these questions. Have you ever been accused of being a micromanager? Do you have great difficulty delegating? Even when you're able to do so, do you feel frustrated and disappointed in the results? When you miss the insanely high, in parentheses, mark on something, do you accuse yourself of not being cut out for your job and ruminate on it for days? 
Do you feel like your work must be 100% perfect 100% of the time? For this type, success is rarely satisfying, because they believe they could have done even better. But that's neither productive nor healthy. Owning and celebrating achievements is essential if you want to avoid burnout, find contentment, and cultivate self-confidence. Learn to take your mistakes in stride, viewing them as a natural part of the process. In addition, push yourself to act before you're ready. Force yourself to start the project you've been planning for months. Truth is, there will never be the perfect time, and your work will never be 100% flawless. The sooner you're able to accept that, the better off you'll be. So this was number one, the perfectionist. Thoughts from Megan? So most of those questions I can answer with yes, hmm. <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Um, I'm not, I can't say yes wholeheartedly with the, have you ever been accused of micromanaging? Because I don't really, but at the same time, I definitely have an extremely hard time delegating things to people. Um, and I definitely set high goals for myself and expectations. Um, I know that's part of why I was very scared and still am when it comes to choreography and when it comes to teaching. Like, for instance, choreography, I know I constantly ask myself, one, is my solo stuff going to be good enough to the point where... I have yet to release something solo. I have tons of dances. Just nothing's released. Nothing's ever finished because it doesn't feel perfect. Um, And when I look at collaborating with people, I'm constantly like, well, what the heck am I going to be able to offer? Like, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about anything. And, and, And there's so much more experience than me. And, and, and what if I do it wrong? And, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then teaching, I know I have a hard time when it comes to like, I practice over and over and over and over and over before I go into a lesson. And it still frustrates me when I mess something up, when I mess up a count or when I accidentally say my left foot when I meant my right or vice versa. Um, for the most part, I laugh it off, but... Yeah, I I can definitely see quite a few characteristics in the perfectionist imposter. I'm interested to see some of the other categories Mm -hmm. and how they describe them because I have a feeling I can relate to a few more of them. But uh, so far, definitely perfectionist is one of those that uh, resonates a little bit with me. How about you? Well, I think I've gotten... A little looser about it lately. I remember academically, I would procrastinate for a long time on papers because I didn't want anything to reflect less than my best work. So if it wasn't going to be an A, it wasn't worth doing <laughs> or turning in. Like I wouldn't want to just put some draft out there and get credit for it. I'd rather, at the time, have the impression that I only put out good work. And if I didn't turn it in, you can just assume it would have been amazing. <laughs> and that that didn't go so well for me 
for some of my classes, but like personally, I felt like at least I was putting forward the right persona, having grown <laughs> up in like gate classes and honors classes and things mm-hmm. like that. With choreography, I've definitely put things out there that I wouldn't want to do now. At the time, I think I was doing my best for the time constraints and ability constraints that were on me. Mm-hmm. Then I think I've been able to stretch a little bit since then so that my best is a little better. <laughs> but um, I don't think like, for example, we have the uh, choreography competitions coming up in Vegas and in Orlando. I'm going to put something out there. Last yes. year I put out three dances for Vegas and two of them I hope to not be called upon to do again. Um, and the middle one, I could probably do do it well enough, but I don't think I should. <laughs> um, I was still comfortable, though, submitting all of those, at least for competing. If not for releasing and having anyone else do them, I at least felt like they were good enough to count as technically a dance, sort of. Right. This year, I would hope that I've put in enough work to want to release the dances that are entered so that I would feel good about them, but I don't need them to be universally loved and and danced as long as I know that there's some weird corner of the line dance world that would want to do this or that dance because I stand behind it and maybe they would want to as well. Okay. For DJing, I try to, of course, I'm sure all the DJs do this, like put together a playlist that keeps everyone moving and makes most people happy. But you eventually have to accept that there won't always be enough time for every request. You might have to run overtime. You might just have to disappoint someone. Um, You may deprioritize a dance that one person requests because you know that the other options you have can get like six or a dozen or however many people out there. And that one that they've requested is literally just them. You want to get it out there if you can because you're still trying to make everybody happy if you can. But it might end up like very last on the list and maybe it'll get played. That's another one of those things where you just kind of have to let go of the idea that you can have the perfect playlist that rotates through all energy levels, all difficulty levels, and gets every group that you see on the floor to do at least one dance every four dances or every five. Okay. I don't think we really have that much experience with hosting events where you'd want, where you'd have like the perfectionist streak, you know, micromanaging, running around, making sure all the decorations are just right. Cause we've never really done decorations. We just kind of show up to line dance club <laughs> or show up to events uh, where somebody else is mostly in charge or go to venues where they have built in lighting and sound systems. So we don't have to test every little thing. Yeah. I'm wondering if there are any other Oh, and then pa, for the podcast, I would would not say that we're perfectionists here. Yeah. 
there are so many, so many times that you know we think a microphone is working well, and then we go back later and we're like, oh wow, it didn't even record it. So then we're like, well, we have a backup recording. It sounds okay. There's a little bit of rattling. It's kind of muffled, but you know what? It's better than nothing. Better to put something out than just blot out an entire streak of several weeks worth of episodes just because it doesn't sound as good as it possibly could. Right. Sometimes it's better just to have something rather than nothing. But ideally you want to be able to put your best foot forward and they say take mistakes in stride. It, it's okay to let people know that you're human if you do make mistakes, but you also want to minimize how human you have to seem when you're leading a very large group of people who believe in you. True story. So yeah, shoot for the moon, but if you fall, don't bleed too much on your way down. Especially if you went among the stars. Uh, my, my quoting must be imperfect today. <laughs> Number two, the superwoman slash man. Since people who experience this phenomenon are convinced they're phonies among real-deal colleagues, they often push themselves to work harder and harder to measure up. But this is just a false cover-up for their insecurities, and the work overload may harm not only their mental health, but also their relationships with others. Not sure if this applies to you? Do you stay later at the office than the rest of your team, even past the point that you've completed that day's necessary work? Do you get stressed when you're not working and find downtime completely wasteful? Have you let your hobbies and passions fall by the wayside, sacrificed to work? That's funny. Do you feel like you haven't truly earned your title, despite numerous degrees and achievements, so you feel pressed to work harder and longer than those around you to prove your worth? Imposter workaholics are actually addicted to the validation that comes from working, not to the work itself. Start training yourself to veer away from external validation. No one should have more power to make you feel good about yourself than you. Even your boss when they give your project the stamp of approval. On the flip side, learn to take constructive criticism seriously, not personally. As you become more attuned to internal validation and able to nurture your inner confidence that states you're competent and skilled, you'll be able to ease off the gas as you gauge how much work is reasonable. I don't think anyone would confuse me for a superwoman slash man. Oh. Certainly not superwoman. Uh, my former associates definitely would. Hmm. Um, they used to be shocked when I didn't come in and work. <laughs> um, I don't know how many times I would stay and work open to closes and you know when I was supposed to be off at five leaving at midnight um <laughs> excuse me <coughs> as for like hobbies and passions falling to the wayside they used to yes absolutely um when I worked as the store manager for the retail store I didn't do anything I yeah I worked I worked and I worked and I worked and I worked um it felt wrong not to be working. I would call and check in on my vacation time. Like when I had to take vacation, I would call and check in. How's the store? How's everybody? You know, and it was certainly one of those um, withdrawal things. 
Since leaving that job, however, I have realized that I certainly need to balance my life more. And although I still find myself with a very strong work ethic at the same time, I also know that it's important to take the breaks. It's important to step away and do self-care and really let yourself enjoy things. Um, So I've probably put that same energy of the craziness for the working into my dancing, um, which is at this point more than a hobby and a passion. It is definitely a way of life for me. Um, But I mean, think about how many times we, you know, wake up, go to work. As soon as we're done with work, we go to club. As soon as we're done with club, we stay after for another, you know, three hours learning dances. And we do that seven days a week. And then we fly to a dance venue and then we stay up until they close the ballroom to the point where we cannot keep our eyes open any longer as we're shuffling to the hotel room. Um, You know, it's certainly something that we enjoy, but we put a lot of effort and energy into it um, and stay later than, you know, necessary per se. Uh, yeah, I mean, we definitely, we do it for ourselves for sure, but I know that it feels good when other people make comments, like for instance, how does Christopher and Bradley know all these old dances? Like that feels good. When people acknowledge your hard work, it does feel good. Um, you know, and so that that's another reason why we do it as well is to show people that we do care. I also like when we're able to in some way contribute to the ballroom staying open yes. just because we're still dancing. Whereas if we were to leave, then maybe the people who would want to keep dancing or at least keep watching and find out if there are other dances they should learn, those folks might not on their own, be able to keep the ballroom open. Because if they're not dancing to every dance, then the DJ might just look at who's out there and say, oh, well, time to shut it down, not enough people. If we're out there staying later than most folks would, because it's us, (laughs) then we're able to contribute in that way. So it says here, even past the point that you've completed that day's necessary work. Some people go to an event and they think, well, I'm going to do the workshops. I'm going to stay for like an hour of open dance and that's all I really need to do. And then I'm going to go to workshops. Um, For us, even if we don't necessarily feel like we're requesting dances or that there's something we've been itching to do, it still does feel good to stick around because... You know, we might be able to add to somebody else's dance night. Exactly. Yeah. It's also why, um, for instance, like if there's one or two people out on the floor, you and I tend to even struggle to try and follow the dance, even if we've never seen it before, uh, just so that there's more people out there that they can, you know, get a chance to dance. Yeah. If I see one person... I will absolutely jump in. If I see two or three, it'll really depend on the dance. And if it's enough that they don't need additional justification to the DJ for why there are people doing that, 
and you know why he should keep the song going then d- depending whether i really want to do that dance or not i'll you know potentially just sit out but if it's one person yeah i i will help where i can cuz it it's a really bumming out feeling when the dj fades your song out when like you were so excited to do it and then you look around and no one else is there and you don't want to just do it by yourself because then you're not in the line, really. You're just like putting on a performance practically. And that's not really why we do at least you know, the dances that we enjoy. Exactly. It's about doing it with other people who also would want to do it, like doing it together. Even if it's a small flock, at least it's a flock. Mm-hmm. And I, I try to add to other people's line when I can, even if, like you say, it's just following it. Number three. The natural genius. That is definitely not me. People who struggle with this, who are also natural geniuses, judge success based on their abilities as opposed to their efforts. In other words, if they have to work hard at something, they assume they must be bad at it. These types of imposters set their internal bar impossibly high, just like perfectionists. But natural genius types don't just judge themselves based on ridiculous expectations— They also judge themselves based on getting things right on the first try. When they're not able to do something quickly or fluently, their alarm sounds. Not sure if this applies to you? Are you used to excelling without much effort? (laughs) Do you have a track record of getting straight A's or gold stars in everything you do? Were you told frequently as a child that you were the smart one in your family or peer group? (laughs) Do you dislike the idea of having a mentor because you can handle things on your own? Nope. When you're faced with a setback, does your confidence tumble because not performing well provokes a feeling of shame? Do you often avoid challenges because it's so uncomfortable to try something you're not great at? To move past this, try seeing yourself as a work in progress. Accomplishing great things involves lifelong learning and skill building for everyone, even the most confident people. Rather than beating yourself up when you don't reach your impossibly high standards... Identify specific, (coughs) changeable behaviors that you can improve over time. For example, if you want to have more impact at the office, it's much more productive to focus on owning your presentation skills than swearing off speaking up in meetings as something you're, quote, just not good at. I like this one. (laughs) See, okay, so first and foremost, this does not apply to me. In any way, shape, or form. So much so. And she says it out of love, and I actually brag about this, but my mother calls me her burnt waffle. So when making waffles, most people burn the first one because you're trying to figure out, like, how long to make it and how hot to get it. So yes, I am not the natural genius. I was not the smartest of the kids. That actually, I would have to probably say, goes to my youngest brother, Kelton. Kid is a genius, like... He just understands things in ways that, like, I just could could not fathom. Um, he's very, very intellectual. Um, but I was not the natural genius. I was the passionate one. So I don't have a whole lot else to say on this part, but I think you might be able to relate a little bit more. I, when I learn dances, I like to go through it on my own. And not to be seen struggling, if possible. I like to... I remember this is even how it was back going um, to Mavericks or Kodiak Jacks. 
I would rather, I mean, learning on the floor is one thing, but I generally preferred if it was a more complex dance to do it on my own, make all my mistakes on my own, learning from some video and then showing up and looking perfect. If not perfect, then at least competent. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember probably like the last experience I had of this not going well was skinny love at Vegas in 2015 When I learned it, like everybody else learned it, we all saw each other in the corner of our eyes trying to figure it out, but I wasn't able to hack it when it came to like the full speed go through. And that was a while ago. So I'll cut myself a little bit of slack for not knowing that sort of style of slower line dances and like didn't, didn't really have like the basics down, uh, of just even how to move my body that way. I was doing a lot of kicks and stumps back then, but, uh, yeah, it didn't feel good to like to do some dances that I was more comfortable with with a lot of zest <laughs> and and gusto like showstopper and dizzy cuz we were doing those back at, you know, the grad and at Stoney's. But then to to have to halfway do a dance cuz I didn't know it that well, it didn't feel like me at all. Like I'm I'm more used to just showing up and you know exploding all over the floor and then stepping off and getting some water. Like that's how I feel. That's when I feel like at my best, or at least that's certainly how I felt uh, at my best then. Uh, To not get something quickly, especially when other people around me are getting it faster and people are like moving on. I do feel like something's wrong with me and I don't want to be the one to speak up and say like, Oh, could we try that? Just like maybe one, one or two more times. Like, if if it comes down to that, I'll like leave the floor, learn it on the step on the step sheet on the side until I feel like I've caught up with everybody or even gone an eight count ahead, and then come back just because I don't want to, you know, look in front of everybody like I'm slowing things down and I'm the one who can't figure out what's so easy for all of them. So I kind of relate to this one on that that point there on that level. And as I mentioned earlier, yes, I did have like honors classes as a kid and AP this and gate that. And it, you know, it was just generally expected, not that it wasn't, you know, celebrated and whatnot when I would do, you know, a a thing right. But like people would look at high school graduation, for example, a lot of people look at that and they say, wow, you did it. You got through all four years and, and it's like this big achievement. But for me, I felt like that was the absolute minimum. Like you weren't just supposed to graduate. Like what is that? Was it like C minuses? Like I was supposed to get A's in all of my AP classes, AP standing for advanced placement, and then, you know, do well on the SATs and get into good schools, like good colleges. So there there were a lot of things like that growing up that felt like what everybody else's normal was you know, uh, was like not, not just normal for me, but like, you're a joke if you don't do the normal. And if it was really, you know, outstanding for a lot of people, then that's like, okay, well, that's a good starting point for you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and this is not to say that I am like amazing or anything. It's just that that's the mindset that I kind of grew up in. Um, and I don't think it's completely gone away, but I think the longer I've spent, (laughs) out of college 
and high pressure, high achievement environments, the more I've allowed myself to just play for most things. And especially in this world that I've created for myself of like singing at senior care communities during the day and, you know, dancing mostly night or at events, I am not observed by the usual people like parents and former teachers and professors. It's people in my world. So people only know me as as good as I have shown them. And as long as I'm if they're not expecting me to be Rachel or Roy or Fred or whomever, and they just expect that I'm going to go out and enjoy myself and expend a lot of energy, then that's all I need to live up to in those worlds. Like even when I'm singing, I don't I don't try to pretend that I'm like the next Elvis or anything, but I always go in with high energy, high enthusiasm and a lot of interaction with other people. And if I don't live up to that for myself, I don't feel good. I don't feel like I've had the best set that I could have. If I half-heartedly do a dance on the floor or God forbid text while I'm on the dance floor, something is seriously wrong. And I feel like I'm letting myself down and letting everybody else down because that's my expectation of best now. It's not about like getting everything technically amazing and winning first place in all the competitions my my definition of best has kind of evolved with me. So when I don't get something perfect and it frustrates me and I don't like letting people see that, I think right now it's more of I can't do this full energy and I can't do this full confidence and that bothers me more than I didn't get it perfect the first time because I'm some amazing dance prodigy. Like... Yeah, I, I think that's that's probably more why I like to just do these things on my own because the standard I've set for myself in everybody else's eyes is whatever he does, he's going to do it full out. If I can't do it full out, then something does feel wrong. Yeah, um, I think there's a few things that I relate with you in the sense of like, I don't enjoy people seeing me struggle while I'm learning. Um, but I think that comes more from the perfectionist side of me than the natural genius side of me. So like, I can kind of understand where you're coming from in the sense of like, you know, I should have this, this should, this should be right. This should be normal. You know, I I shouldn't be struggling with this, but the reasonings I think are, are definitely separate. Um, yeah, I, I know for me, I never put a priority on like scholastics. That was not my priority when I was in high school or anything like that. I mean, high school was, you know, just a fun time to go and see your friends and not be at home and not be at work. But, um, you know, it's like I've being in college now, I've definitely set more of a priority on making sure I'm studying and making sure I'm actually getting those A's and keeping my grade point average up and, like when it comes to learning dances, you know, it's like I do push myself, but I also know that, you know, it's more of, like I said earlier, the perfectionist side of me that gets annoyed when I'm struggling with something as opposed to like the genius side of me, because that's just funny. <laughs> I think now that I, now that I've 
had a, a moment to, I don't know, have some of those things come back. Some of it might have to do with like the sort of musical theater-ish upbringing that I've had as well, mm-hmm. where I'm used to performances being done before anybody sees them. So like when I grew up from like the ages of, I think it was like three to 10, I'll have to double check with my parents. I was involved at a, a Daly City Dance Academy. It was later North Peninsula Dance Academy. And I would do a little, little skits that they would do, you know, little, um, medleys of dances. I was in Nutcracker a couple of years and, and then later, you know, in Taekwondo, I was in Taekwondo for 10 years. You do your practices and you learn you know, your various forms, which are sort of like line dance. It's like 24 choreographed steps yeah. of attacks that you're like fighting the air and everybody learns them. And then sometimes you do them together. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> like blows my mind that I was doing that for 10 years. Anyway, there just wasn't music. Anyway, um, you, when you do your test, when you do your final test and like get your next belt, you're tested individually and you show what you've been doing on your own, like your own homework, um, as the final product. And then in college I was in, you know, West Side Story, Fiddler on the Roof, Oklahoma, Legally Blonde, Beauty and the Beast, all these different musicals where Again, like you do your practice at rehearsal, but nobody sees it except the other people who are doing it. When you go out there, it's expected that you are ready for it and everything that's being done is being done intentionally. You're not trying to gloss over some flaw or some mistake that you made because you're unprepared. And if I'm if I'm out there doing some dance where other humans can see me, uh my, the expectation I put on myself is that I know it well enough that I'm okay with that. Not that it's necessarily an in, a, a performance or you know intended to be a performance, but I think I still have some of that mindset that it's supposed to be done by now. Like you don't figure it out while the music's playing. You figure it out at like half speed with counts to yourself in private. And then once you're done with rehearsal... Then when the music plays, you're ready for the show, so to speak. And although I was in like an improv comedy group in high school for four years, like after, after that, like in college, people's version of improv was so polished and they were so good that I didn't feel comfortable just going out and like winging it and faking it. I felt like I needed it to be done before I went out and other people saw me. It wasn't just my small friend group doing improv for each other where the only people who were in the room were people who were similarly invested because we were all participating, like with line dance. It was people doing improv and there was this audience. And I didn't, I didn't like that thought that I was going to be doing this for an audience and it wasn't guaranteed to be good. The way with a musical, you you have ways of preparing yourself. With line dance, I like the idea that there are other people around and we are all invested in it and we're all trying to kind of figure it out. And the people who are watching are also there because like they paid money to be there and they're all supposed to be there. What I don't like as much is... When you're dancing at a place with no cover 
and the people who are there are not necessarily invested. And it does sometimes feel like a performance that they are able to judge you on without having any kind of negative feedback for them. Like you never have a chance to see what they're capable of doing, but they are able to look at you and say, oh, well, that wasn't so good. Or like, oh, man, you totally messed that part up. This this is, I guess, for a for somebody who's grown up as a performer and thinking that performing is just like the natural way of being or something, uh, that can take more of a hit than if you don't have that expectation on yourself. When you don't think that I am, you know, I am a performer, I'm just out there and I'm going to mess around with the music, then if somebody sees you and they think something and you don't have that performer expectation, you're just like, oh, whatever. You know, hey, you should come out and do this too. It's fun. I'm just doing this because it's fun and you're doing it because it's fun and blah, blah, blah. Like, I think that's that's what possibly has shaped some of this, like, quote, natural genius mindset is that uh, if this is something I've always, quote, been good at and that's why I've kept doing things like musicals and, and performances, then to be in a situation where I'm not good at it and it's very obvious that I'm not good at it, that, that can make you reflect on yourself and say like, well, what am I then? Makes sense. Yeah. Let me reread what the solution was to this. Okay. If you want to have more impact at the office, more productive folks, owning your presentation skills than swearing off speaking up in meetings is something you're just not good at. Okay. That's okay. For people who ever say like, oh, I'm just not, I'm not good at math. I'm not good at science. I think those are learnable things. And when it's worth it to a person to eliminate that as being one of their weaknesses, they will learn it. But it's not possible to learn everything to a maximum degree of ability uh, or like be the best in the world at everything. So I think it's okay to say, well, I'm not that good at it and I'm not going to make it a priority right now because I have other priorities that I do want to improve at. But at least I know it is learnable. I think that's fine to say. It's it's okay to acknowledge that that you're just not going to take the time, but you could if you wanted to. And I know that I could be I, I could be way more fancy or you know proficient at guitar and i know that's something i'm not going to do it's not enough of a priority for me to say um i need to be the best at guitar again me my my standard is high energy high enthusiasm bring everybody in let's all share this experience if i'm not doing that then that is the problem um but it's a learnable thing that I could learn if I wanted to. I'm not going to tell myself that it's just not in me or I'll never be able to do it. I think that's an unhealthy thing that can kind of spread out to other parts of your life and just keep you from being your fullest self. I agree. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's a lot on that topic. Number four, the rugged individualist. Sufferers who feel as though asking for help reveals their phoniness are what Jung calls rugged individualists. It's okay to be independent, but not to the extent that you refuse assistance so that you can prove your worth. Not sure if this applies to you? Ask yourself these questions. Do you firmly feel that you need to accomplish things on your own? I don't need anyone's help. Does that sound like you? 
Do you frame requests in terms of the requirements of the project rather than your needs as a person? There's no solution to this one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You you just got to deal with it. No. Um. So I can see a slight relation to this one. I do have a hard time asking for help. Um, <laughs> funny story, I guess. One of my favorite things uh, growing up as a child was I do it myself. And... Um, you know, <laughs> I'm sure that drove my mother nuts more than she cares to admit. And she admits quite a bit. Um, but I also understand that people do need help. And you can't do everything on your own. I have learned that from trial and error as well. Uh, that goes back to the having trouble with, as a perfectionist of delegating. Um, you do need help. And it is something I have slowly, surely um, began to digest and accept. And I mean, a perfect example is the present day right now dealing with what I'm dealing with. Like, it's really hard to accept the help. Like, I feel guilty accepting help. To give people context, Megan's house burned down last week on Monday during the wildfires that swept through uh, the area where we live. Um, But... I also know I can't do this on my own. So I just need to make sure that I let people know that who have helped, that I really do appreciate it. And the people who've even just simply offered and called and checked in and that kind of stuff. Um, You know, it, it does mean something. So it's just the flat out saying, I need help with this is hard. I think actually learning line dance has actually improved my ability to ask for help. I think asking to go over it one more time has allowed me to grow as the perfectionist as well as um, the superwoman. I can do it all myself as well as, you know, this one here, the rugged individualist. Um, I think struggling... Uh, to grasp some of these dances and not having them perfect when I step out on the floor. Like, it's frustrating when, you know, I spent time learning a dance and I feel like I have it and then I go out on the floor and then, like, every other wall I'm screwing it up. It's really frustrating for me and it's hard to swallow because I should know this. I should know these dances. I've done them a hundred times. And so that does get frustrating, but... I've also kind of learned at that point where I'm also human and it's okay. Um, I know with you, I've, I've, we've gone over dances and dances and dances. And then like, I'm like, okay, I need you to break this down for me because for whatever reason, I am not comprehending it. And having to admit that out loud, um, I think has definitely helped force me into a more accepting role of myself. Um, Granted, that's also something that, like, you and I have certainly worked up that kind of trust in, you know, uh, our relationship of, like, teacher-student and friends and all that dance partner stuff. It's, like, admitting to each other when we're struggling is hard, but it's something that we know is going to be met with, you know, understanding and not judgment. 
So that's important. Um, but that was not an easy thing to develop for sure. That is definitely one of the things that makes me, uh, ask myself whether I'm comfortable asking for help is how is that ask going to be received? And when I'm at line dance club or anywhere where I'm teaching line dance and people do ask for help, I think about how I'm responding to them because I know that can be a scary thing to do. And some people are able to get away with teasing um, and the whole class laughs and, and maybe the, the person who asked for help laughs, but that's not the kind of teacher I want to be. Uh, I treat their question as though it's the most normal thing in the world. And I get right in there and we go over the thing and I do not check in with everybody else and look around and be like, Oh wow, it's that like, that's their problem. Like, God, you guys all have it. Why don't they have it? That is such a hor. That's like a nightmare. Yeah. That's a, a horrible feeling to have that spotlight of you just told everybody that you're ignorant about this particular thing. Um, and, and now you're going to feel ignorant of that thing as opposed to, um, just feeling like, you need one more and then you'll have it. You, you just, you were a little confused. It's not, it's not that you know, you can't do it. It's just, maybe there was like a fly and it landed on your cheek and it's like, Oh yeah, we can totally go over that thing. Yeah. I, you must, it must've just been, you know, whatever. There was a loud buzzing in, in the microphone and you, you didn't quite hear what it was. It doesn't even matter. You don't have to give any explanations. You just get in, solve the problem, get back to the rest of the class. And if possible, make it sound like that's a common thing that everybody has trouble with or that previous classes have had trouble with or that you as an instructor had trouble with when you were learning it. Sometimes that is the case. I will ask people for help if I feel like that is how I will be treated uh, as though my question is a reasonable one to ask. It's not an inconvenience and it's not slowing anyone down. If if possible, I try to anticipate those problems before they come up, but it's, it's, hard, it's hard to know just by looking at people whether they're going to have a question about it or whether they'll figure it out on their own. So, <coughs> so yeah, just you know, personally, I do as much preparation and homework as I can so I don't have to ask the question. But if I've seen the way the instructor is working with other people and they're able to get through all that quickly and efficiently and politely, then yeah, I'd be willing to ask a question or just have them go over it once more. Yeah. Oh, also kind of tied in with the bit in the last part about disliking the idea of having a mentor because you can handle things on your own. I'm very okay with asking people who've been doing this for like 20, 30 years, what works for them? Because I, I think it, I mean, just based on how we look, it's obvious we do not have the level of expertise as everybody else. It's not even worth trying to fake it. No. So if we're able to get secret cheat code shortcuts from people that will get us to where they are sooner so that we can go farther and advance the field as a whole, uh, absolutely. I'll take any, any advice, any, any help we can get. Oh, yeah. And we've already implemented n many things that people have told us about, you know, how to demo dances 
uh, and keep people engaged and you know rooting for whatever it is that you're you're demoing. Um, how to teach lessons and keep people alert without making them feel like a second grade class that you're chiding about how noisy they are. Uh, you can like doing the whole, um, are you on the right foot? Say yes. You know, just little things that make them say something or do something. So many people we've seen have done that. And then now knowing why they do it and implementing that in our own classes, it, it's a helpful tool for us. Anything like that, we are willing to sponge from all the folks we we look up to ourselves. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, yeah, that's the last one with the, are you uncomfortable with the mentor thing? I was like, no, no, no. I want as many mentors as I can get. Yes, please. Because they've figured out what to do and what not to do up to the point where they're at. Um, obviously the people that I look up to and respect, um, I mean, there's so many in the line dance community that y'all, y'all know like how they are. It, they always think there, there's more to learn and there's more to grow. And so they're still striving to better themselves. And so, you know, up to the point where they're at, they've figured out some of the things that work and don't work for them. And, that may or may not work for us, and who knows? But it's worth a shot if it's going to make something easier for me and my classes or me and my choreography for people to learn and stuff like that. If it's going to make things a little bit more seamless, I would love to implement that kind of stuff and try it a, a few times to make sure that, you know, like whether or not it works. Um because like Rachel's sound effects or, you know, Joe's say yes or guidance say maybe or, you know, stuff like that. People who can count while calling out the steps or people who just count or people who just do the steps or, I mean, all of it. Like everybody's figured out something that works for them that if I could try just a little bit a couple times, I can figure out if it works for me and then I can better myself. Number five, the expert. People who fall into this competence type may feel like they somehow tricked their employer into hiring them. They deeply fear being exposed as inexperienced or unknowledgeable. Do you shy away from applying to job postings unless you meet every single educational requirement? Are you constantly seeking out trainings or certifications because you think you need to improve your skills in order to succeed? Even if you've been in your role for some time, can you relate to feeling like you still don't know, quote, enough? Do you shudder when someone says you're an expert? It's true that there's always more to learn. Striving to bulk up your skill set can certainly help you make strides professionally and keep you competitive in the job market. But taken too far, the tendency to endlessly seek out more information can actually be a form of procrastination. Start practicing just-in-time learning. This means acquiring a skill when you need it. For example, if your responsibilities change, rather than hoarding knowledge for false comfort. Realize there's no shame in asking for help when you need it. If you don't know how to do something, ask a coworker. If you can't figure out how to solve a problem, seek advice from a supportive advi- supervisor or even a career coach. 
Mentoring junior colleagues or volunteering can be a great way to discover your inner expert. When you share what you know, it not only benefits others, but also helps you heal your fraudulent feelings. No matter the specific profile, if you struggle with confidence, you're far from alone. To take one example, studies suggest 70% of people experience imposter syndrome at some point in their career. If you've experienced it at any point in your career, you've at one point or another chalked up your accomplishments to chance, charm, connections, or another external factor. How unfair and unkind is that? Take today as your opportunity to start accepting and embracing your capabilities. This article originally appeared on the Daily Muse and is reprinted with permission. So the final point here is the expert. Do we feel like we always need to know more? Um, yes, actually. I, I've always exclaimed that I love being cross-trained and knowing as much as I can uh, about as many different topics as I can. I feel like it adds to my value as an individual is to know at least a little bit a lot. Um, I don't expect myself to know everything about everything, but I really do. For instance, like we've talked about wanting to be uh, the most helpful in the line dance community, which is why we're dancers, which is why we've started taking on teaching, which is why we choreograph, which is why we're interested in DJs, which is why we're interested in hosting events, which is why, you know, all the little checkoff points, we want to have experience in it because we want to have as much, you know, benefit to those around us as we can possibly give. And... I'm always seeking out more knowledge and more training. I'm always looking to see what else I can gain because um, I feel like I can grow from it. But I never once considered that like a potential of procrastination. But I guess there there is a point in which if you only get to a certain point in each of your learning and then you move on, you are procrastinating that com- completion. Um, yeah, I mean, hmm. I didn't think this one would uh, apply to me just based off it being the expert, but I guess to a certain degree, there's a little that I relate to in all of them. Uh, but primarily I'd have to say, uh, probably the perfectionist Mm -hmm. is the closest for me. I think one thing that I do with this one for the expert can probably be generalized to some of the others as well. It's very easy as somebody who's new with all of this DJing and teaching and all those things to say when somebody approaches me, Hey, can you DJ this event? Hey, can you teach at this bachelorette party or whatever? My first instinct might be, well, DJ Jeff, he's been DJing a long, long time longer than me or somebody like Kat or Brenda, they've been teaching longer than me. Uh, better, better call one of them first. Just check to see if they can do it because they're the real instructors. They're the real DJs. And I mean, only, only consider me as like your last resort. Like if you really can't find anybody, yeah, sure. I'd be happy to do it. And it's so easy when you're not as experienced to try to put everybody else 
before yourself for opportunities and things like that. But I guess in light of what I mentioned about how what I do at guitar sets or with dancing is really focus on the energy and enthusiasm factor. I am more willing now to accept these sorts of opportunities because sometimes I'll think about it in terms of like, if they didn't go with me and not, not even looking at dance for the moment, but like, let's say it's uh, some guitar gig or whatever. Mm -hmm. If I don't take that spot and somebody else does, and they aren't giving it their all and they are asking for more money to do less and have a, a poorer experience with everybody in attendance, if that's a possibility, then they should, they should have me there instead. Like it's not just me going in there with less technical expertise in fancy classical guitar or anything and that not being good enough. Instead, it's like, I am, I'm protecting that hour from anybody else who could do something worse with it. It's not that I have to be the best, but if my goal is to have everybody there have the best possible time, then that would be enough of a success. Somebody who goes in and plays fancy and scowls the whole time and never asks for anybody's name, doesn't ask how they're doing, just kind of shows up, collects the check and leaves like the people that I could have been there with deserve better than that. And that's what they would be getting with me instead. So now, as I said, I would be more willing to accept these sorts of opportunities. It does feel kind of weird um, to be on the bill for Palm Springs winter break alongside people who've been doing it much longer and who dance much prettier uh, like Darren and Amy and, and the various other folks that Michael and Michelle have have brought on this year, this coming year uh, in Palm Springs. But if I don't think about it in terms of like having to be as good at everybody else, as good as everybody else at what they do and think about what can I bring that I can do better in my mind than, I mean, it's not even, I shouldn't even look at it in like a comparison thing, but what, what, what is it that I do best? And, um, Will people at in the, at the end of it, by whatever means necessary, will they have had a good time? Will they be glad they went to the event? Will they be glad that they took my class? If I can do things, if I can prepare in such a way that that answer is yes, then I don't have to feel bad about taking that spot. Yeah. So I guess that would be the cure for this. The expert one is that, yeah, I, I know that I'm, I'm not the most experienced or knowledgeable, as they say here. And I wouldn't say I shudder when people ask if I'm an expert or think that I am. I just tell them like, oh, well, I, yeah, I don't know every dance. And like, uh, I, I, oh, I, I probably don't do that one you know, perfectly, but I sure do love that one. And uh, I, I'd really try to give that one my you know, 100% every time I dance it. Uh, because that's how I feel about that one. That's how I feel about dancing overall. Anytime I dance could be the last time I dance that dance. I mean, I could get hit by a truck on my way out of the event, and that would be the last time that I did Pump It or New Flow. Do I really want to do Pump It or New Flow half-heartedly if that was my last chance to do it? What if I end up, like, not even, you know, off the planet entirely, but just paralyzed? I would feel so sad if I squandered that opportunity to do a dance that I love. 
or you know to teach with as, as much fun in my heart as I could have taught. If I just go in, you know, try to collect some paycheck, then no, I don't deserve that spot. And it should have gone to somebody more knowledgeable because then even if they're scowling, I would have been scowling too, but they, at least the, the students get technique from that scowler. Yeah. 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 I can kind of relate. Um, some of that has been, if I don't think about it, I can say yes. Like when people ask if I if I can teach something or if people ask if I can cover this or <coughs> something to that extent, like if I can demo with them or something like that. Like if I don't think about it and I just say yes and then I go out in there and, and do it, it's done and then I can come back and then I can freak out about it. That's when I got it figured out. It's when I do that in reverse, when I freak out about it and then say yes, then I'm in trouble. <laughs> Because I don't want to let anybody down. So, of course, I want to say yes. But I also have that like, oh, God, but 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 I've never done that before. But I've but but I've only ever done this like this or. Yeah, yeah, I've taught people, but like, you know, they're my friends or something to that extent. Like I've never taught in in a big scale. And it's like, well, actually, you kind of have. They weren't your friends always. You had to get to know them and. You know, stuff like that. Um, But if I just say yes, jump in, and then freak out about it, it's so much easier than doing the reverse. So I've gotten better at just doing some of these things that I'm not quite confident that, like, I have the imposter syndrome still about. Um, Just jumping in has gotten me a little bit more used to the idea that Okay, I survived that one. Okay, I survived that one and I had fun. Okay, no, I really had fun doing that one. Yes, I messed up, but whatever, I had fun. You know, and so it's progressed every time since then. Not exactly in that exact manner in the sense of like, oh, this lesson and the very next lesson. No, it took a little while. Um, I still do freak out. I am definitely nervous about the next couple days of teaching, but I'm also very excited so I'm excited to have that opportunity and comfort level. Um, I'm still going to be practicing like a crazy person and, and a perfectionist and, you know, going over the, the steps over and over and over and over and over and over and over until I feel like I couldn't mess them up. Um, I still will mess them up because it's me and I'll get flustered. But I think I'll get to a point where I'm just laughing at myself and then other people tend to laugh and enjoy it. So here's hoping this weekend goes well. (laughs) Two places where the imposter syndrome has popped up for me, DJing and event hosting. Event hosting is the next one on the horizon, I think, because I'm still at a place of inexperience now. As Megan slowly dies in the corner. Uh, (laughs) uh, I'm still inexperienced enough with putting on country nights or events that there is this bit that says, well, hey, if we rented out a hall and we put out registration flyers and we brought in some of our favorite instructors to teach some people some dances... That could be fun. It wouldn't be a real event, of course. I mean, it's not 
it's not like an event event. This is just, you know, a space where people can come and dance for a few days and like, you know, hear some of their favorite music and hang out with some of their favorite dance people from other countries. But that's not an event. That's just us. That's just us messing around. Right. Like, that's how I'd feel about that. Like, that, that's just the kids playing grown up. <laughs> exactly. That was something I have had to get over with DJing because at Mavericks, when they had me filling in on Fridays for a while, I didn't have any kind of expertise with virtual DJ or Serato or Tractor or any of the real DJ apps for real DJs. I had Spotify, which is just music streaming, like going on YouTube and playing a music video because you want to hear that song. It's like that, but without the video on Spotify. So people would come up and they'd say, hey, could you play this? And I'd be like, sure. Or they'd say, hey, do you have that song? I'd be like, yeah, I could probably dig that one up and of course it's spotify so they have millions and millions of songs you just pull any song up that they ask for and if you don't have it you go on youtube and you find if it's there you rip it and you you play it through windows media player none of this through dj software none of this with beat matching or fancy fade effects that was just me playing music as if i were playing music in the car I didn't consider myself to be a DJ, nor probably should I have. But anyone else who saw me would have thought that I was. And I would deny it in my head uh, while not, you know, crashing their idea of they're going to a club and there's going to be a DJ and he's going to play music and that's how it works. I wouldn't tell them any differently. But in my head, I would know I was really just playing Spotify. So then, you know, fast forward to us hosting these country nights and sometimes uh, DJ Jeff is not there. And even when he is there, he has discovered Spotify. (laughs) Uh, I still will go on Spotify and I'll find these songs and make playlists. And the great thing about line dance DJing is you don't need to fade into the next song. There is space in between each track. So you don't need to know how to do that. You could just play the song. And then, like in the olden days, when people were putting, you know, the DJs showed up with a, a cabinet full of cassettes and CDs, and they would play country songs from a CD, and then go to the next CD and go to track five, and then play that one. You can have all the time in the world in, the, in between to do patter or to say, hey, you know, make sure you go get a drink over at the bar and whatever you need to do. Now that I know that that's really a lot of what the technical side of DJing is or could be. I look at the skill of DJing more as like what we've heard from um, Louis, Jill and JP as where it's knowing the room, knowing what people will dance to managing their energy. So they don't have to knowing when to do a fast song, when to do a slow song, when to give this choreographer a break. Cause they've done the last three uh, when to give that group of people from Canada a break because they've done the last three. When to bring out this wacky one that breaks the tension. When to do a slow one that builds the tension and and then go back and forth between those. Like It's the selection and knowing what to choose and when that is like the internal game of DJing. But as far as whatever you're doing with your computer, I don't have to feel like an imposter anymore because really... It doesn't matter how the music gets played as long as you play the right songs at the right time. The tricky part is just figuring out what is the right song and what is the right time. In th- in that regard, I don't know how much I would consider myself a DJ 
uh, of say like late night dancing the way Louie and JP are able to do it or, you know, Jill with her request room, but for doing a country night. Yeah. I, I don't feel like I am in the minor leagues quite so much because I don't have to beat match and I don't have to fade. I just have to play what they want to hear and I have to keep them happy all night long. So I, I wouldn't exactly print DJ Chris or DJ CGZ or whatever on my business cards. But if somebody wanted me to DJ their event for line dance specifically, yeah, I could do that. I wouldn't feel like an imposter. CGZ? Well, yeah. My first name is Christopher. My last name is Gonzalez. My initials are CG. So on the street, they know me as DJ CGZ. That's, that's a secret that I wouldn't want to put on my business card. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely gotten a little bit more comfortable with the more experience I've gotten. Uh, but I think that also comes down to the idea that I have gotten the experience. So I feel like I have a little bit more room to say yes to some of these things and kind of force the envelope of my comfort zone, as well as like, I mean, again, you know, like, it's interesting to know that, it, what was it, like 70% of people consider themselves imposters at some point or another. Um, that's kind of an interesting realization to me because, you know, it's like, yes, I know a few people who have felt that way at one time or another, but, you know, here I am, you know, every single day going, one of these days they're going to figure out I'm not as cool as they think I am, you know. Um, but it's like one of those things as well where fake it till you make it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the more experience I get, the better I become, the more I learn, the more I realize, oh, that worked or that didn't work. And so I feel... I feel like now, although I'm not an expert by any means, I feel like I have something to speak to. For instance, when someone's teaching um, for the first time and I can see other people in the room kind of struggling a little bit, you know, I have ways of going, can you break that down again? Or wait, where's my weight ending up? Or something like that where I can ask the question uh, to get the cl clarification that the rest of the class may need. Or I know like even with you, because it's, it's hard when you're up front, you don't have eyes in the back of your head. And although, yes, you can turn around and watch people and, you know, like the best instructors do, you, you know, you can still miss things. So having that extra person that's willing to speak up whether they're struggling or not, you know, when they see others are, it's certainly helpful when people go, yeah, can we do that one more time? I go, yes, 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 we can. Thank you for saying that, you know. And I always, uh, for the most part, I like to do the, when I ask, do we want to do that one more time or we want to move on? And someone says one more time, I will do the one more time as opposed to, you know, four people saying move on. But okay, let's do that one more time, you know, just solidify that so that it's a little easier once we do the next wall or something to that extent. Uh, just because if you have the courage to speak up and say you need help, I want to reward that. And I want, you know, I would rather you be bored 
with the repetitions on the first wall so that the second, third, and fourth wall are easier than rush through everything and you struggle for the dance and, you know, like have to really fake it because that doesn't feel good when you're struggling for like four or five times now because for whatever reason you didn't speak up and ask for the clarification. Um, so I like to do that. I like as taking the lessons or whatever, you know, I know there's certain things that I prefer to go over more than once. Um, and I like to have people have that option or, hey, can we do that a little bit slower um, that was a little bit too fast kind of thing. And that's just kind of reading the room. And that I know has helped some of the, you know, instructors that are doing it for the first time. And here I am, you know, I've only been instructing for a couple months now. So it's just because I've had the mentors I've had and I've gotten the advice I've I've received and I've really listened and kind of like, focus my energy on being the perfectionist that that allows me to at least help a little bit and then then I I feel a little less like an imposter per se like I don't necessarily feel like I could go and teach you know at uh, Vegas tomorrow but I also know that in a pinch I could so with one more time I like there are these little sneaky things that you can do uh, that helped keep it off of that person who asked for the one more time. Like if it is really one more time, I think other people will understand that. Like everybody can use one more time. So you say, okay, we're, you know, taking this one again from the top weights on the left, uh, same tempo, same wall, and we're going forward on our right foot with a you know, rocking chair or something like that. You just do exactly the same thing that you just did. That's all you really have to do. But if they ask for it again and you had already said one more time, then in order to – to if this is the kind of thing that you think about. I know that I hear it a lot in music when um, – when in, in lyrics they'll say like, all right, one more time. And then it's like, it's the third time you've said one more time before the chorus. Like <laughs> we're doing the chorus again one more time. If you told me it was three more times, I would like that heads up. But um, if if the person does ask for one more time or if somebody else asks for one more time, you can spin it a little differently. All right, all right, let's try this one again. Let's do it with counts this time. And then that way it doesn't feel like that person had to do it the exact same way and hold everybody back twice in a row now you're making it about you it's like yeah you know we haven't done this one with counts let's try a mix of counts and let's you know let's let's go uh, let's go through the steps uh, let me call the steps again or let all right let's slow this one down just a little bit or uh, all right let's let's start it out nice and slow mellow tempo but we're going to speed it up just a little bit before we get to the next wall just do something different that way you don't feel like you lied when you said we were going to do it one more time and then you do it one more time again. This time is totally different from that last time. So it's one more of its own kind, not twice of that previous kind. And like I said, it does take the heat off of the person because it's you choosing to do something differently that you forgot to do before like oh whoops we never did it with counts some people really like doing it with counts so let's this you know this one goes out for all the people who learn better hearing it counted out uh 
you you can get creative with that if you've gone through counts and descriptions and slowing it down and speeding it up and trying two walls in a row and trying sound effects uh get weird you know let's try it with one eye closed <laughs> you know whatever I, I i have not personally done that one before uh i would not recommend doing that for anything with a lot of turns <laughs> disorient people but um yeah, there are definitely ways to make that one more time not seem arduous and instead seem like a variety pack and who knows what we're going to get next. Yeah, going off that a little bit, I know I've taken lessons from people, for instance, like Fred will say, one more time for me, um, you know, and I've used that before too. I generally use that when I've like flubbed words. I'll be like, okay, let's try that one more time in English. For Megan. So uh, let's go ahead and do that from the top. Uh, another thing I've heard of is let's do that one more time to make sure it wasn't luck. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, you guys look awesome. Let's go ahead and do that one more time to make sure that we're uh, not adding in our own variations just yet. You know, stuff like that. I've, I've heard definitely uh, different variations to that. So that although they say one more time, you you can you know do it once or twice more and and still get away with it, like you said, with switching to counts or qu- to step descriptions or you know changing tempos or something to that extent. Mm-hmm. Or different things to focus on, like all right, let's do this one again. Um, feel where your arms are for this one, just to see if they're in a natural position or you know, if they're kind of stiff. So maybe focus on loosening your arms or see where your upper body is taking you for this. Or for people who want to try a little extra something during the grapevine, try a rolling vine for one of those. Or um, And then another one is, you know, this time I'm going to peek. Like, if it's just a, a basic one more time, then you can say, all right, so let's do this one more time. I'm going to look over my shoulder and just kind of see where we're all at. Um, so if I'm staring directly at you, I'll, I'll be staring at somebody else in a second <laughs> or something like that. You know, uh, I don't think I've ever actually said that one quite that way. Huh. Anyway, um, yeah, you, you can um, definitely focus on different parts of the body because there's always something else to look at. Like, you know, how are you holding your shoulders? Where is your... Uh, balance leaning more toward are you leading with you know looking toward the direction you are heading in because I remember in Taekwondo they would say that like look before you start moving in that direction because if you just charge in moving to your left and you think that you're going to punch a guy and he's got like a stick pointed at you you're going to walk right into the stick so look and then move in, in that way or as Joe you know was saying in her technique uh, class, let the body lead you there as opposed to your feet. You know, feel the natural motion of wherever the next few steps are going to happen, and then your feet will follow you there. They will get you there. The intent has to start the motion. Hmm. Well, that's all kinds of stuff about this article, uh, which originally at the very top of this, an hour and 20 minutes ago, was titled The Five Types of Imposter Syndrome and How to Beat Them. And this was hosted on FastCompany.com, although it was originally, I guess, on a different website. And this was written by Melody Wilding from The Muse, which I guess if I scroll down to the bottom will probably end up being where this was originally. Yep, this article really uh, originally appeared on The Daily Muse and is reprinted with permission. Okie dokie. Well, we have about a half hour left, and 
I think now's a great time for a musical break. So we're gonna put on uh we're gonna put on a track. I'm not sure if we've done this one in the last few weeks. So what the heck, we'll do this one. Uh this one is for the the dance shots with somebody. And because I have all of the internet at my disposal, I'm going to double check that Rachel didn't co-choreograph this with anyone else. And indeed she did not. Uh, This was choreographed by Rachel McEnany White. And the dance is shots with somebody. The song is no doubt about it from Empire and Jussie Smollett featuring Pitbull. And I don't believe this one's on Spotify. So you're, Getting a little extra special treat here. This is the song that goes with the dance, Shots with Somebody. We'll be right back. 